0: There's a widely recognised link between how well teens will do in their exams, and school in actually, and the kind of interest and support that they'll get at home over and around their education. At least that's how I justify any fleeting moments of being overbearing and nagging to my children. But not all support is created equal, so just how can we be more deliberate and focused in our attempts to help our young people as they prepare for their exams? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our third season of the podcast, we're chatting with parents, students and teachers to hear how things are going. Specifically, of course, we're interested in the highs and lows, the trials and tribulations in the run-up to exams in 2022. We'll be covering everything from trouble getting going to burning the candle at both ends from students who are overzealous and anxious to those who are underperforming, yet still nonchalant. Through these shared real-world experiences, I hope that you'll take some comfort that you're not alone. Perhaps more importantly, I hope that you'll take away some insights and advice that can help you to support your own team so that they'll not just survive the exams, but thrive in the preparation. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, I'm absolutely thrilled to be chatting with Helen Howell. Helen is the Director of English in a Greater Manchester Secondary School. Helen's also recently authored the fantastic Revision Revolution, how to build a culture of effective study in your school. So, with a title like that, as you can imagine, I'm really excited to be chatting with her. Helen, thank you so much. It's great to have you on the show. Now, you've been a teacher for a little while. So why is it that you think that revision needs to go through a revolution in schools now?
1: Yeah, I suppose I've always been a little bit frustrated at the fact that it's never been explicitly taught. I think my biggest frustration was around the sort of negative connotations of revision. So we have all the best intentions when we do this. And I also am guilty of it. But we will often say things like, you don't revise, you're going to fail, you'd better revise. And it all becomes very much loaded with negative associations and, you know, almost doom in the future if you don't do it. But then the problem is that a lot of students just don't know how. And, you know, those lucky students like myself who who ended up having private tutors and things like that, they find a way and, and they usually get Pretty decent exam results might go into further and higher education. But many students don't necessarily have those advantages afforded to them through no fault of their own and through no fault of their families either. So, really, my frustration was around two things, I guess. The negativity around revision, which I thought was unnecessary, even though I'm guilty of it myself, I have been in the past. But also the fact that students, aren't explicitly shown how to do it so it's kind of almost becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy that students aren't then going to revise because they're made to feel almost frightened of it but also they've got no tools in their toolkit to figure out how to do it so threaten them as we might, they're not going to go away and do it all. They're not going to go away and do it effectively. So I thought, actually, there's an opportunity. We're in this quite exciting era in education at the moment where it's become evidence-rich and research-informed. We know what the best bets are for our students. We know about you know really effective study methods. But we're perhaps not at the stage yet where we're explicitly sharing that across the board. So the reason behind the word revolution is that it really is about creating a completely cultural shift, really, in terms of the way that we approach revision.
0: Hmm. Certainly, I think as a, from a parenting perspective, would completely echo that. That, that I, I saw it in my own children. So going up to their, their exams and you sort of think. Why don't you know how to do this? I don't. I, I don't know. Is I'm I'm too old now. It's been so long since I did my exams. I must have done it right at the time, surely. How come you don't? How come you don't know?
1: Yeah, and you know, I do start the book by talking about my own experience of revision being really quite positive. So it's sort of like yourself, really. It's a, it's a bit like well you know, I did actually manage to find a way. But then when I think about it, and I think about the conditions of my upbringing, I suppose, and and not even just the fact that I had a supportive family, and I had a tutor and things like that, but also my circle of friends, I just happened to be surrounded by good influences, which again, you don't necessarily have. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky, really, I, I managed to do quite well because I was lucky and a lot of students don't have that, but also it didn't work as well when I went into college and then to degree level. So it sort of had got me questioning, well, it works to a point. Like not particularly effective revision strategies or a little bit of cramming or, you know, completing past papers and things like that, which are sort of your go-to strategies will give you success to a point or will enable you to perform but they're not going to enable you to reach that level of kind of challenge and um, advanced learning and complexity that we we want to empower all our students to be able to do.
0: I think that's so right that actually it does depend on your own experiences. I think also that because it's something that we tend to have to go through from a quite a young age at school tests. I mean, even in sort of year six, you might end up doing something on Egyptians or Tudors or what have you. So, sort of, this, there's this idea, I guess, that it's almost natural. But when it comes to these big high stakes exams like GCSEs, this, there's obviously a lot more pressure. So, do you think it's about time that we need to stop thinking of revision as just in time? Of exam activity and more something that happens right throughout their schooling.
1: Yeah, I absolutely do. I'm actually really keen to move away from this connection between revision and exams or assessments or tests. And actually, it's completely manufactured by the education system, that link. um, Because as I'm head of English, I'm obviously a language geek. And I looked into the kind of etymology the morphology of the word revision and when you drill it down to its purest form we look at the prefix re just means again vision means to see so so all we're telling students to do at any point in their educational journey is to look again at something they've looked at before so it's about just going back over prior learning in the most effective way that they can there's more than one definition of the word revision but they're all really positive so the other definition meaning to make improvements just something to revise it in a way that makes it better. So you know, you won't look up in any dictionary, any definition of revision that makes links and connections to exams and tests. So I think that's where we've got this kind of manufactured concept of it being about something really negative and anxiety-fueled and and all that kind of thing, which I'm, I'm really keen to move away from, partly because of well-being of our students. Obviously, that's been very negatively affected by COVID as well, but partly just because as you said yourself, you know, it's not actually what revision is. Um Revision is actually just effective study. You know, I think it's Daniel Willingham, isn't it, who talks about the fact that memory is kind of learning in disguise or understanding in disguise, I think he says. So actually by students finding effective methods to study and remembering their learning they're starting to make those connections between different bits of information and therefore their understanding is growing so it's just a really meaningful part of their learning journey it should really be attached to curriculum and part of lessons and you know explicitly modelled and things like that rather than just something that they do before exams i mean apart from the fact that as we now know cramming is completely ineffective you know it defies all the science i i probably did cram before my exams and i, and I did well in my gcses but i don't remember any of that learning i mean i remember no. the bits i was interested in but i don't remember anything about physics gcse for example i got a double a star but you know i just just crammed it and and therefore that learning okay i got a good grade but it was quite meaningless in terms of like me taking it anywhere so, yeah, I'm really keen to sort of move it away from some of those last minute kind of cramming in order to pass an exam, because I think as well, it's a really reductive view. And revision is so much more than that. It's it's an integral part of the learning journey.
0: You see, isn't that part of the problem, isn't it? That that cramming, you said the cramming is ineffective, but actually cramming if if all you're doing is trying to get the best mark you can in that one test that you're doing in the following morning that actually gets there it's in your it's closer to your working memory in your working memory it's and so you're likely to perform better but of course given the amount of knowledge that's that's required now in GCSEs and children taking eight nine ten more GCSEs Mm. actually you can't cram for that many and not have a detrimental impact on your anxiety levels and and well-being.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it's all well and good, like you say, to cram and and to do okay. But that's sort of why the title Revolution, again, is important, because it's it's a shift away from what's perhaps natural instinct. So the natural instinct of a lot of our students will be to cram will be to highlight will be to reread and do the things that feel quite easy perhaps I mean I also write in the book about at university I'm sure this is still a thing I mean it's many years ago that I was there but we all used to talk about pulling an all-nighter and and we'd say it with such pride Mm. you know um, oh I had to pull an all-nighter to get this essay in but it's so unhealthy and counterproductive but it's, it's just what we did we just needed that kind of pressure of hitting a deadline and actually the the more meaningful thing of kind of chunking it and researching it in advance and, and doing all the bits that would have got you to produce something of much higher value just didn't have that urgency to it so it's a complete cultural shift that I'm sort of yeah. advocating.
0: It's interesting and so right when I, mean, I look back at my own experiences certainly university and. To be fair, I think all the way before that, as you say, the all-nighters were the feature of coursework having to be in. I, I My caffeine dependency levels now are phenomenal, I mean, shocking. <laughs> but as you say, that's not the kind of thing that you can use sustainably for an exam, yeah. and certainly not if you want to use that knowledge, then build on afterwards. And I wonder whether actually as parents, because we might look back fondly or otherwise on this sort of all-nighter situation, <laughs> That it's the kind of thing we might sort of expect our children to have to do. Obviously, at the sort of this age, we're not looking for them to stay up yeah. too late, late at all, in order to do it. But but somewhere in in us is almost that feeling, as you say, that part and parcel of revision is a last minute race to the line.
1: Yeah, and I mean, even now, I've got really kind of diligent Year Eleven students who say to me, "Oh, it's, as doing this till midnight and I'm like no I, that's not what I want and actually I think this particular student was talking about another subject but it's like irrelevant I guess it's just that like you say that culture of he's really hard work and he wants to do really well but that's absolutely not the way to do it I mean we were sort of the the Red Bull generation <laughs> as well so so like you said about you know it, it's just such awful unhealthy habits but I think it does need that complete cultural shift to move away from that and I mean I think because you kind of alluded to us doing it much earlier and I think actually if we're doing it much earlier like the book talks about starting in year seven but I think it could start in primary to be honest then students shouldn't feel they need to do that I think I think that's the point that they should be coming towards their exams with a whole toolkit of different strategies feeling confident feeling prepared and not feeling like they need to pulling all nighter because Mm. they already have that knowledge and and you know it might be just a quick five minute flashcard activity or something and and they feel happy and confident Mm -hmm. so if that's going to take time but i think it's possible i definitely think it's possible
0: and it is as you say it's it's ingrained in our entire system isn't it even the 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 wealth and number of teachers and educators who will speak very loudly saying revision is not an activity for exams I don't think like I'm very happy to be wrong that there's a (laughs) school in the country that doesn't have revision weeks before the exams it's it's part of it I mean it's it's so ingrained in what we do isn't it
1: yeah definitely and I think again with the best intentions I really want to emphasize this because it's by no means a criticism it is just a a cultural shift you know year 11 collapse timetable or a whole day of English whole day of mass whatever it might be or intervention which will happen maybe like the term before the exams or you know it might be like revision sessions which again, usually in year 11, and sometimes, you know, I've seen worst case scenario, they're just a complete free for all where the kids turn up and they're either on the computer, not really quite sure what to Google, or, you know, they're having a bit of a social, which, you know, revision can be an incredibly social activity. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, it just goes back to not really quite knowing what that should look like. um So, yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of schools doing that with the best intentions, but. It's unnecessary. And I think it could be done in a very different way.
0: So you talk there about some of the activities that children might do when they come to these revision sessions. So I don't want to, I don't want to dwell too much on what could be, because obviously for a number of children and parents in year yeah. 11, and actually, of course, year 13 for the A-level students, we are in this position where I think we're 90 days to the end of the exam period. So so we already feel like we might be knocking on the door. Right? Mm, yeah. So I'm quite interested in some of those practical elements that you talked about there and, and what to do in those revision sessions. So with particular reference to what can be done at home, I suppose, what are the kinds of good revision techniques and approaches that students might be looking to employ?
1: I think it's worth talking about the criteria, the sort of overriding principles of effective revision before going into specific strategies. So. Again, it sounds counterintuitive, but it should be active rather than passive. So that might incorporate some real difficulty. It should actually feel quite hard. And I'll talk about in what way it should feel hard when I get to the strategies. Because when I say hard, I don't mean not accessible for all, because there is a way for it to be accessible for all yet still challenging and still difficult. So it should be active and not passive. So when we think about passive, we think about things like highlighting and rereading. Well, how much of that is really gonna go in because it's such a passive activity. It might be watching a revision video, again, very, very passive it should incorporate some of those desirable difficulties, it should be accessible for all, and it could be, this is um, an interesting one, I think, it could be really quite social. So, you know, I think there's a real idea that revision, right, I'll go and lock myself in my bedroom, and I'll be there in silence for an hour or two hours, um, and that's my revision session. And I think that as well might feed into this culture of oh god I just hate revision because the whole revision revolution is trying to make it irresistible and um, so it could be quite a social activity so in terms of strategies like what strategies lend themselves to that there's really simple things like in powerful teaching which is by Agarwal and Bain. I think I'm right in saying those two authors.
0: Patrice. Yeah, Patrice Bain, who was on a previous episode. Yeah,
1: that's a brilliant book. They talk about things like retrieval cards and power tickets. So retrieval cards, such a simple, brilliant technique. They have like important items of knowledge. So if they were revising Macbeth, Because I'm English, so that's my area of comfort. They might look at the concept of hubris. They might look at, you know, a key quote. They might look at, you know, a vocabulary word, whatever we deem to be the most important principles. And then they just start it if they know it, question mark it if they don't, fill in the answers for the ones they've starred, look up the answers for the ones that they've question marked. And then it's a guaranteed success because they've either they've either done it by knowing it or they've done it by looking it up so it's active it's difficult because they've got to retrieve the information but it's also you know they've got that hopefully that sort of warm fuzzy feeling of of success you know they're not there's a little bit of struggle involved, but they're also able to visually say, okay, I knew these ones, I was confident on these ones, but these ones have question mark. I need to go back to them in a, another study session, or I need to go away and make flashcards with that information on. So that's a really good one. The power ticket's just three facts, and it's a great one for spacing and interleaving as well, actually, because it's based on I hope I get this right now, last lesson, last week, last month, last term, last year, something like that. So, you know, you could adapt that. You could adapt it to be different topics if it was like science or math essentially and then they just write down the facts facts that they can remember again it's active they're having to think hard about what they can remember I actually adapted that one slightly so after they'd written down the facts they would then write a sentence using that information so sort of trying to bridge the gap a little bit between the factual recall and some of the more complex kind of you know application of that knowledge so that's just a really little simple tweak to get them starting to think in terms of if I've got a question on this, what might the start of my answer look like? So, kind of generating topic sentences and things. Flashcards, again, really easy, good ones. So, the idea behind flashcards is that they shouldn't have too much information on them. So, if it was languages, it might be a keyword and then the translation or the other way around, around a particular theme to a particular topic. But of course, you could interleave other topics in there. And then with the Leitner method, which is the one I talk about in the book, they have three compartments. So compartment one, all the flashcards go in there, they get them right, they move them across to compartment two, which is alternate days rather than daily. And then compartment three is then weekly. But if at any point they get them wrong, they move them back to compartment one to be tested every day. So it just makes sure that the bits they're not as confident with, they're encountering the most frequently. Another bit from powerful teaching on flashcards, which I thought was just really simple and great, was to retrieve. So no matter whether they know the answer or not, they've got to attempt it, they've got to attempt to retrieve it and then reorder. So retrieving the information in a different order, which is introducing, again, a bit of a desirable difficulty and making sure they're not just kind of parroting the answers and then repeat. So they have to get them right three times before they remove them from the pack. So you can combine, those kind of two methods with flashcards, which is really, really simple. In English, and and I guess this would work for quite a lot of similar subjects like history, kind of essay-based subjects, we use Cornell notes as well, which is a very simple note-taking technique. They use it a lot in universities, so heading at the top cues down the side which could be questions or keywords and then their notes go down the body and then they just do a bit of self-quizzing on that so they hide the body of their notes and then they use the cues to try and retrieve the answers that's again a really simple one the only thing I'd say about something like Cornell Notes is that note-taking process does need explicitly modeling because it's not and this is part of my sort of drive at the moment in within school is that you know you can't just hand students a text and say go and take some notes they need to see that note-taking process they need to understand how almost like the language of note-taking like how to make abbreviations all that needs to be modelled to them so there's a few just a few to get started
0: (laughs) and as you say I mean so many of those things actually the sooner you can start the more your revision I suppose becomes more effective but also feels less daunting doesn't it because if your revision activity is oh I've got to make flashcards then actually it's that in itself can be an uphill struggle whereas if the flashcards were created I mean ideally I guess within a short space of time after the lesson in the first place then you're also helping to fight that forgetting curve and sort of really get into a a good pattern and um, habit.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really important to say as well, you know, I know what it's like we as a family could afford to buy the card or whatever, but obviously for some families, they might, I would never make that assumption. You know, like there is a thing called craft poverty, which I realized when we're in lockdown and all of a sudden my son wanted to do like Mr. Maker. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's all about the like arts and crafts. And it's so expensive to buy all the stuff, but you know, even, I would never make any assumptions of parents. I think the materials must be provided in school, not just from a perspective of cost, but also from a perspective of s- parents have such busy lives. Um, and you know, we get a lot of communication from our son's primary school and sometimes we don't even get his reading done. And I feel terrible, but I do understand that we need to keep things as simple as possible for parents. So we need, as schools, to be taking the responsibility and providing the flashcards, like you say, allocating time for them to be produced in class, modelling the process, so that actually when parents are supporting with revision, they've got everything they need and and it's simple and it's quick and, you know, it's very easy for them to slot it into very busy lives.
0: Mm. Because, as you say, with the best will in the world, there aren't very many parents out there who could sit GCSEs off the map with their GCSE yeah. children and do well. So there's not that luxury, even if there was a desire to try to learn this stuff, to become a part of revision um, session and, and do all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But overwhelmingly, those who can are keen to do whatever it is that they can to help. So I'm, I'm quite interested in going back to what you talked about and that social element, whether or not, there is a coaching, a buddy aspect to it that the parents can do in helping their children in something that can become, or certainly start to feel a lot lighter touch.
1: I think definitely, you know, the strategies that we talked about there, the The joy of those strategies is that all the information's there. So as parents, you don't have to, you know, if it was maths, if it was GCSE maths, I'd be panicking because I struggled with my GCSE maths. But all the information's there, the answers are there. So actually, it's great if parents can quiz their child using flashcards or using, you know, the notes that they have or using, you know, something they've produced in class. You know, some kind of high quality resource and, and getting them to retrieve. But in all those strategies, the information's there, the content. There, so they don't have to know the right answer. The right answer is there, so that's the first thing. But there's a couple of other things that would be brilliant actually for parents. One is, you know, studies show that teaching is a really, really effective revision strategy. So, if you know, you were to say to your child, "Okay, teach me, teach me about the concept of hubris in Macbeth." And then because they have to go through the process of preparing, which means kind of organizing their thoughts, you know, like the way that we do as teachers, we have to be really good. And our subject knowledge has to be brilliant to know exactly how to teach this in a way that's accessible. So they would go through that process. The delivery. They'd have to think really carefully about how to deliver it in a way that, again, is accessible to a novice and they'd have to really sort of reorganize the information. And then they could even do a bit of like a quiz to their parent, which I think would be quite a nice activity to do. So by designing that quiz and seeing how successful their parent or even an older sibling you know any family member is in that quiz they can sort of judge the effectiveness of their teaching so teaching is a great one and I think probably quite a nice thing to do like maybe a bit of a bonding activity as well and, and a way for children to show off their knowledge as well like really show off you know my son at nearly five years old knows more than me about certain things but so that's one
0: as you said there's a dual benefit there isn't there they get to show off how much they know and also get to ridicule the parents because they won't know and I yeah and yeah. I, I'll take your I'll take your nearly five-year-old <laughs> and raise you a, a 16 and a 21-year-old and tell you they like nothing more than knowing that they know something that we don't know
1: <laughs> I can absolutely imagine because I, I mean my five-year-old I do understand what this is <laughs> before I make myself look stupid but my five-year-old was telling me all about trigraph the other day and oh and, and he knows you know he knows how many sides an octagon has and things and I, I just think at, at his age that's impressive I mean there's other bits that he doesn't know he's mm-hmm. not a genius or anything but, um, <laughs> but much as I'd like to say is, he
0: doesn't know how many angles are in the inside well, of an octagon. there you go you know he
1: has his flaws <laughs> but yeah they, I, I can absolutely see that he's going to be a nightmare yeah. as he gets older <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah so teaching is a great one coaching you mentioned and actually I use this in the classroom quite A lot, but parents can, you know, just watch their child complete an activity and their child just talks them through it. So, you know, if they're writing a paragraph, for example, um, about a phase in history or the causes of the world war or something like that, and they're talking them through what they're doing, where, and why they're doing it. So there's that kind of metacognitive aspect to it, which is really effective. But also, the parent can Mm. then watch, they can obviously listen, but they can also question. So they can say, well, you know, they're verbalizing their thought process, the child, but they can also sort of ask them, well, well why is this here? Why are you not using this word? Um They can even sort of be a proofreader and tell them where they're missing sort of capital letters or punctuation or or suggest Mm. a better word and and things like that. So, again, there's sort of like a dual purpose there. But I think that's quite nice. Even just the simple kind of opening up a dialogue around revision, I think is good as well. So even just, again, going back to powerful teaching, there's a good tip in there that's just tell me three. So like, tell me three things you've kind of achieved in your study session, or tell me three things that you found hard in your study session. Give me three targets you've got moving forward, or even just at the end of the school day, tell me three things you've learned today. So it's just opening up that continuous dialogue. And again, we talked earlier about positive language. That's a really nice positive way to do it. So it's not like, oh, what are you struggling with? Or why haven't you revised? Or, you know, you talked about sort of shouting at them, and that doesn't really work. This isn't that at all. It's not just, eyes in them it's just opening up that ongoing dialogue making them feel listened to
0: yeah i know that well at least i suspect that a number of parents are probably be thinking this sounds entirely utopian <laughs> that i might be able to sit down point out a capital letter has been missed from a piece of work it be well received and then ran trap like we go um skipping through fields but the reality of course is that you do need to start somewhere with these kinds of things. We want to help and, and the kinds of activities that we've been doing before haven't necessarily been breaking through. And, and I think for me that from my own experiences that that, that element of coaching of moving away from being the parent who is inherently judgmental in any teen's eyes into someone who is actually just paying an interest and wanting to help is, is the tipping point. They will remain a grunting teenager for a long while in the, as part of those conversations, I'm sure. But it is a it's a it's a process and and the first step has got to be having a go, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, and I mean take proof region out of the equation completely if you like, you know, everyone knows their child extremely well <laughs> and knows what will work and what won't. But you know, just like I say, even just that process of listening to them talk you through, which similar to the teaching example, is an opportunity for them to say, look, I know what I'm doing. I actually can explain to you the steps that I'm using here. And it's quite nice for them to have that person listening. Because I think, you know, actually, even the process of them reading their work aloud, you know, we have it in the classroom all the time where they often don't get the opportunity to read their work aloud or they don't read it aloud themselves because, you know, they might feel a bit insane doing that. But when they do, it's really useful because they will spot their own errors. So even just them going through that process with someone to listen, because not many students, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't imagine many teenagers wanting to sit alone in their room and talk to themselves. But if they know that they've got someone listening and they're reading it aloud to someone, it's just, again, that slight little shift, isn't it? Hmm. And as you say, every
0: every um, teen is um, is different i know some who would very much rather be talking to themselves than <laughs> the idea of engaging their parents <laughs> and talking to them about hubris in macbeth or whatever else it might be that actually they they want that that level of isolation which i guess sort of that makes it more interesting from the parenting point of view doesn't it is that as we open with, that there is this connection, and, and in a number of studies has been done, that parents and a supporting home life, in whatever makeup that, that household might look like, that the adults around paying more of an interest has, a, has an exponential benefit of the children. So in the case where a child is trying to either abdicate all responsibility for any kind of revision, I'll do it later, I do it at school, I don't need to do it at home, or shuts off the parents, do you think it is still worth the parents, I suppose, keep going to to try more and to sort of chip in and, and help where they can, even if the team doesn't seem like they want it?
1: I think so. Yeah. I mean, even I know I keep going back to my son because he's my frame of reference, like he will become a teenager one day, I know, but you know, even with him, he's relatively keen at the moment, but he'll still come home from school and I'll say, oh, what have you learned? What have you done? And I try and open up that dialogue. And I'll say, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a boy thing. I'm not sure. But but it's difficult, isn't it? Because like we talked about before, it's having that balance because actually, if I push him too much, then he's going to think I'm nagging mm. him. To tell me, and actually, all I want to do is have a lovely conversation about it. But I think there are other ways to do it as well. You know, if if you have a child who is like, no, I do not want to revise with you. I can't think of anything worse. Then just creating a space for them. You know, and um, they need a space that's free from distractions. It doesn't necessarily have to be silent, like we talked about. It could be a very social activity. It could be that they're revising with a friend. But it needs to be focused, so it needs to be free from distractions that are going to take them away from the learning.
0: And so, moving beyond the sort of the more pragmatic, hands-on kinds of things that that parents may or may not be able to do, you've also always got that that emotional support, the crutch, the kinds of thing. How how important is that in in relation to how secure teens feel and how confident they become?
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. So obviously, we talked about the impact on well-being that COVID's had. And, you know, I, I do really, really feel for this year's year 11 and this year's year 13, because they haven't had the preparation that other examination year groups have had. And also last year, they didn't do formal exams. So they're the kind of the first year, aren't they, to do formal exams with all the disruption. So they, you know, if they do feel anxious, it's absolutely understandable. And it's just doing everything we can. I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that we can get rid of the anxiety. And and as we know, a little bit of an anxiety, a little bit of nerves is actually good. It's actually just means that they care. But there are little things we can do, you know, lifestyle wise, in terms of like. And again, I know we can't force them, but trying as we might to keep them kind of hydrated to make sure they've got a good bedtime routine and they're getting a good amount of sleep that they're not sort of on their phone or watching telly straight before bed and things like that. So there's there's all those kind of lifestyle things. But also, and I know time is of the essence. I know we don't have the luxury of starting them off with study skills from year seven, but just giving them those strategies so that they feel that bit more confident and that bit more prepared. One of the things that I constantly go on and on and on to my year 11s about is that a study session doesn't have to be long it doesn't have to be right it's sunday i've got the whole day so i'm going to spend three hours on maths and then i'm going to spend four hours on english or whatever you know there's lots of quick kind of five minute activity so brain dump is a great one i hate the name by the way but um <laughs> you know you could call it a knowledge splat or something where they just take something and it could be anything so it could work for any subject and they just write down everything they know about it everything they can remember and you can make it more focused you can make it more tailored and then they can go back over their notes or you know cross-reference it with their exercise book and take a different color pen and then write in the bits that they've forgotten and then again they're sort of aware and it's very visual what they are confident with and what they need to go back over hmm. that can take kind of five ten minutes so i think it doesn't have to be onerous and it doesn't have to feel like oh this is a i've got a, a long hard day of revision in front of me
0: i think it's jenny webb who called that um refer to it as blurting okay. which i, I agree that is quite nice
1: yeah better than brain dump.
0: use that pretend you came up with it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
1: thank you i will <laughs>
0: you say because I, I think there is there is that role that parents can play, and I think that actually we tend to i think see ourselves as a bit backstage, yeah and I think we we want to do more to help, we appreciate completely, of course that we can't do it for them, that there's only so much that we should do that they need to send on their own two feet and and all of this kind of stuff, but understanding, I think that there are different roles that we can play at different times, whether it's yeah. the emotional supportive bit or the the encouraging and cajoling just needs to take five minutes. Why don't we just do this for five minutes? Mm. Tell me all about it. And then I'll get on with pizza or whatever else it might be. Actually, there's there's still lots of stuff that we can do.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the stage that my son is at, chocolate works very well. So it'd be like, oh, like, <laughs> let's read your book and then you have some chocolate. I think that must be my terrible doing because I'm a little bit addicted. But yeah, definitely. And I think as well, it's about empowerment. You know, you talked about we can't do it for them absolutely not and we shouldn't be because then it becomes passive again doesn't it and it needs to be an active process but all of these things all of these strategies and little hints and tips and you know five minutes revising here and 10 minutes at the end of the day evaluating your revision and looking at your strengths and areas to develop and actually talk to me about what went well in your revision session and what you need to go back over and giving them a bit of a voice around revision is is all about empowering them so that they know how to revise and and they've got that support with revision it's not about absolutely not about doing it for them or forcing them it's hopefully giving them almost like a bit of a toolkit and like you said the support network as well
0: well all i can say is viva la revolution where do i sign up The overwhelming majority of us parents will find this whole revision thing a really hard slog. Our teens tend not to want to do it, and if you're anything like me, in all honesty, I don't relish the idea of trying to get them fired up all the time either. And while we all want to support our teens, I mean, that is why you're listening, presumably, it's not always straightforward. And questions about what needs to be done can go down like a lead balloon. A lot of this reluctance to engage from our teens comes, as Helen says, from the fact that not only is revision seen as a laborious activity, but how to revise is often not something that's explicitly taught. All too often, I find myself confronted by teens who'll tell me that they don't even know where to start, or perhaps even worse, they're making assumptions about what they should be doing, which aren't actually especially helpful for their revision. And that doesn't make it easy for us parents, does it? I mean, we know what they need to be doing, revising, but without the right tools and skills, it can feel like we're floundering a bit once we get past that don't you think you should be doing some revision stage. But short of inventing a time machine, Helen's revolutionary ideas of integrating revision earlier on in schooling and explicitly teaching how to do it don't unfortunately change where our teens are right now although some of you could be in a fortunate position of having younger children, in which case this could be a bit of a game changer. However, for those of us with teens, all is not lost, which is important to remember because actually it can feel like time's running out. But Helen shared some, what I thought, fabulous ideas about how our children might go about revising and importantly, what kind of a role we can play in that too. In particular, I was struck with the need for revision to be active rather than passive. It's something we've come across before, but time spent highlighting and watching YouTube or sat near an open book is not necessarily time well spent. There's a level of desirable difficulty, as Helen put it, that's key to how well they do. They don't want so much difficulty that they think that this is all impossible, but at the same time not so little that it's a breeze and it's not challenging. There's a sweet spot where it's just enough difficulty that's going to make them feel empowered by the progress that they're making. And I also love this idea that we, parents, might be able to help make revision less dull. It's that social element that Helen mentioned. Certainly, I tended to be warmly reassured by the sight of my child hunched over a desk, laboring away. But actually, the fact that that's not productive might actually also be part of the contributing factor for why teens avoid revision, because it's just so boring. Now, unfortunately, many of us aren't in a position to spend every evening helping our children revise, even if, to be honest, we wanted to. But there are ways in which we can help lift the tedium, simply by being a source of interaction for them. So, for example, why don't you come and tell me about your chemistry revision while I'm chopping the veg? Or maybe hand me your flashcards and we'll have a quick blast through. These things don't need to take a long time. But also, we don't need to be sat there while they're working, because all of this is just giving them a sense of things being a bit different, and also that we're committing our time to their cause too. This might just be the tipping point in how they view revision, and that can only be a good thing. My thanks to Helen for coming on the show, talking about her book and chatting with me and generally about revision. And also, of course, thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to be on a future episode and share how things are going, or perhaps there's just something playing on your mind, please do drop me an email. The address is hello at thestudybuddy.com. And if you're looking for ways that you can support your own young person to fulfil their potential in their revision, then why not head over to the Study Buddy website? There you'll find a whole host of information on our innovative time management and study organising approach, And you'll also find a blog that's packed full of useful articles, hints, and tips. So to find out more, please do make a beeline for thestudybuddy.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode certainly as much as I did. And if you did, I wonder if you'd mind leaving us a review and, if it's not too much to ask, a five-star rating. It all helps us to reach other parents who, just like the rest of us, are looking for ways of making sense of it all in the run-up to exams. Of course, don't forget to share the link to this and other episodes on your social media weapon of choice. It's all greatly appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.